Welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I am here, as always, joined by my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Timothy O'Toole. What is up, Tim, for the first time in 2022? How are you? What is up? Happy New Year, Brian. Happy New Year. It is nice to be uh, into 2022 big things are going to happen this year. Yeah, as we as we as we lurch through the first couple of weeks of 2022, <laughs> uh we're not off to the most auspicious of starts, uh but I guess we haven't had an attempted insurrection uh so far this year. So I guess we're I guess we're ahead in the tally when you're thinking 2022 versus 2021, but yeah, a tough a tough start in a lot of ways with Omicron <laughs> and with this with those of us uh, suffering through the snowstorms here in DC that have shut everything down and uh you know, I was I was reading something this morning that called it 2020 part two, um, <laughs> the sequel. Yeah. So, so hopefully yeah. that's, hopefully that's incorrect. Yeah. Not, not, not the look we were going for, for 2022, but happy to be back. Thanks to uh, everyone for joining us at always, as always on embargoed. Thanks to everyone who uh, listened to uh, our year end 2021 pod. Got a lot of comments and feedback um, as folks were listening as they were, perhaps walking their dogs over the holidays or uh, getting back into the swing of things early in 2022. So thanks for that. Um, we are we are dealing, but not to uh, tip our hand too much, but for anybody who's been following the news, you probably guess what we're going to talk mostly about today, um, which is Russia. And so in a moment, I will I'll get to that. But um, before we do the normal uh, advisories that we are not providing legal advice, we're not discussing any confidential information, any and all views and opinions you hear today are those of Mr. Tool and me. And uh, if you disagree with them, blame us and nobody else. And if you enjoy the pod, please spread the word. Please subscribe and you can get us anywhere you get your pod content. Um, and that is uh, that is uh, about it for our introduction. And now uh, let's run through the roadmap real quick. As I said, um russia this is really the all russia this is kind of the russia extravaganza episode as we we sort of tipped our hand in the year end last year that if there was going to be one thing that we thought might be dominating the news in 2022 uh in the international trade uh and sanctions realm it was probably russia and so far so good on that uh prediction so we are going to spend uh pretty much the entire episode just dissecting all the various aspects of the uh, growing crisis with respect to Russia and Ukraine and what's happening this week and what may be coming down um, the road in terms of actions by the U.S. and the global community with respect to Russia and what what people out there should be thinking about, worrying about, focused on now, given that there's so much that is up in the air. Uh, and that's really it. We're going to we're going to hit the Russia story from about five different angles that's going to be the bulk of our conversation and then we're going to do in the lightning round we're going to hit three quick topics which is um uh the uyghur forced labor prevention act which just was enacted prior to uh the end of the year uh in 2021 some we're going to talk briefly about a couple of new appointments and key positions at the commerce department and what that may uh foretell coming down the road in terms of enforcement and um, export control policy. And then uh, we're going to talk briefly about a recent OFAC settlement um, with Airbnb. Uh, and that'll be our show. So it'll be a pretty tidy, compact episode by our standards uh, to kick off 2022. 
before we do, Tim, any any thoughts before we jump into uh, jump into the fray with our friend Mr. Putin and and sort of chop up the Russia situation? No, I mean we ended 2021 with Mr. Putin, and uh, we'll begin 2022 with Mr. Putin, and and we'll see how that goes. Yeah. All right. So without without further ado, yeah, always interesting when when uh, this is this is the focus. So uh, without further delay, Russia. This is um, as I said, this is the the Russia episode. So let's just set the stage briefly, and then there's a number of topics we're going to cover with respect to Russia. So obviously. Um, as has been in the news, um, recently, um, the, uh, Russian military is amassing troops at the Ukraine border. And there have been a lot of, uh, warnings levied by the U S and others about what may come if Russia attempts, uh, attempts a full scale invasion of Ukraine. And that has, um, you know, sort of grown in urgency, I would say, over the last couple of months. Um, and to the point where um, where we are now, this week, actually, we're recording this on January 11th, which is a good time to be doing this because yesterday was the U.S.-Russia Strategic Stability Dialogue meeting in Geneva. Um, there's a meeting, uh, Russia's meeting with NATO tomorrow in Brussels, and then there's a third meeting with a broader group of um, countries on Thursday as well. So they are kind of making the rounds this week. I think there are not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of hope that the, the talks and the meetings this week are going to yield much other than perhaps drawing some lines in the sand on either side about what, um, the U S and other partners would be, um, prepared to do in the event that Russia does invade Ukraine. Uh, and for Russia's part, what they're demanding of the U.S. and, and the NATO countries with respect to security um, guarantees and, and the like that, that Russia is, is, is very focused on at the moment. But I think what is um, the first thing that's really come out of this, and, and there's obviously a lot of, there's a, some other things brewing in the background as well. There's the situation that's happening right now in Kazakhstan, which is... Um, also another factor that's kind of complicating things because the Russian military has has been called in uh, to help kind of put down uh, the unrest in Kazakhstan. So that's kind of another, um, you know, geographic. Uh, they're exp the Russian military and the Russian government is is almost um, because of circumstances that perhaps couldn't have been anticipated or, or expanding their footprint in that way to some degree. And that's kind of, I think, adding to the tension. And then um, there's a few other things going on in the background between all these parties that we'll get to in time. But I think the first thing that I think we want to focus on is obviously um, sanctions and what it is that the U.S. seems prepared to do if and when there is uh, an invasion of Ukraine by by Russia, and there's a couple different angles here. And I think what has been signaled. So the U.S. has not really gone on the record in terms of what it is that precisely that it is prepared to do. Although through government high place government sources, they there this has now been put out into the mainstream news media in the last few days as to what the planning consists of, which would be namely that the the 2014 sanctions that were imposed when uh, Ukraine, when Crimea was invaded by Russia, 
would be far surpassed and this would be a you know in the words of certain officials this would be sort of crushing sanctions this would be well beyond what has been imposed previously and would ex exact a significant toll on russia if they were to make the mistake of invading ukraine and and namely that is it seems to be focused on the financial sector and in particular the potential um uh, some large banks or perhaps the largest banks in Russia and whether or not they might be the SWIFT um, system might be, so they might be unplugged from the Swiss, SWIFT system a la uh, the, what has happened with Iran um, historically and how that has, um, what that may um, do to, to the Russian financial system. And then also to impose some kind of a more comprehensive, essentially embargo on U.S. technology that can flow into Russia, whether that would be certain types of um, more highly controlled items or even to the level of just consumer goods and um, lower level items, uh, you know, something along the lines of, you know, what we see with respect to, to Cuba uh, or Iran. Um, all of those things seem to be on the table. Those seem to be the, the, the kind of two big sticks or two big items that have been discussed publicly and, and have been reported on publicly in the last couple of days. So there's a lot to unpack there. Let me let me maybe tee this up with a question for you, Mr. O'Toole, which is, you know, I think implicit within all of the current strategizing about what may be coming in terms of the sanctions is uh, that the US perhaps didn't go far enough back in 2014. And what was done at the time while it did have some impact, I think that's undeniable, it certainly is, did not serve as the deterrent that the U.S. was hoping for at the time. Um, and so it seems that the U.S. is resolved that if there is further aggression by Russia, that they will take more extreme measures this time around, perhaps to create that deterrence or to create the pain in a manner that has not been felt before by Putin and the Russian regime. So maybe just react to that. What are your thoughts on sort of how, you know, what we're seeing talked about now, how that relates to what was done in 2014 and what you think the potential, imp I think there's a lot more questions about sort of if this does play out and if these do these things do get put into place, what kind of impact that really would have, what collateral consequences there would be, what unintended consequences there would be, et cetera, et cetera. But what do you, what do you make of, what do you make of that as a sort of starting point for what we're, what the discussion seems to be now? Well, I mean, I mean, you raise a lot of questions there and I'll start with this. I mean, I, I always go back to kind of what is the point of sanctions? What can sanctions realistically accomplish? If you go back to 2014, it, there was this, the sanctions were designed to kind of draw a line in the sand um, after the invasion of Crimea, um, that essentially said that the the Western world is united. Uh, we don't approve of this. We want you to walk it back, but we're going to and we're going to impose sanctions until you do. Those sanctions clearly got Russia's attention. There's no question about that. I mean, Russia has enacted all sorts of laws preventing compliance with the sanctions internally. Um, they have engaged in various campaigns within the U.S. to try and get the sanctions lifted. Um, they, they, these are sanctions that have had some effect on Russia. But as just a theoretical matter with sanctions, if you impose, just to, to pick a term, maximum pressure immediately, you don't have much leverage um, in case the behavior gets worse. 
And so what the original sanctions in 2014 did is they kind of froze the status quo. I think the hope was that there would be negotiations that would um, involve a withdrawal from Crimea. They have not been successful in that sense. They haven't backed the Russians out of Crimea, but it really hasn't gotten any worse, at least with respect to that region until potentially now. And what you're seeing now is that there are available ways to ratchet up the sanctions, um, which I think the West hopes will be a deterrent. And and I think you've put your finger on what those are, and I think they those those would ratchet up the sanctions quite considerably, particularly, um, you know, if the U.S. were to impose financial sanctions on the the Russian banks that either involved withdrawing them from SWIFT or sanctions on the energy sector that involved putting big companies like, for example, Gazprom on the SDN list, that would be a considerable increase. And, you know, there could be collateral consequences in the West, particularly with our European allies, if, say, for example, Gazprom were put on the SDN list. But those are options that are available because we didn't go all the way in 2014 with just kind of maximum pressure sanctions. They are available. Now, whether they'll work any better than the last set have to, to kind of walk back behavior after it takes place um, is another question because sanctions often aren't great for that. Although if the Russia were to decide it was in its national interest to want the sanctions lifted more than it wants to invade Ukraine or keep whatever territory it gets if it did invade Ukraine, they could have that effect. I mean, that was the effect they had in the JCPOA with Iran. By all accounts, Iran stopped its nuclear program, froze it in place, uh, walked it back to the levels in the JCPOA because of the the, the promise of, of lifting sanctions. So so I, I, I do think that these options um, you know, are all on the table in part because of what was done in 2014. I think they have some chance of success because they are considerable escalations of the, the sanctions. But I also think that, you know, we have to be realistic about what sanctions can and can't accomplish. And, and my understanding is that that is not the only tool in the Biden administration's toolkit in terms of what sort of consequences Russia would face if it were to invade Ukraine. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, I I think it is, you know, some of the, again, because this has been a theme that we've been talking about a lot recently, which is, is the collateral consequences piece and the unintended consequences piece of sanctions weighed against sort of what the, what the benefit really is and what, whether or not uh, imposing additional sanctions is in fact serving the ends that have been identified from a policy perspective. And it, it seems pretty clear that sort of a military option or a military intervention on at least directly on behalf of the US is not is not really in play or palatable at the moment if if uh, Russia were to invade Ukraine. And so I think the idea that something akin to and I and I, I would say also I don't think that even with what's being discussed right now, I don't think that even comes close really to approaching maximum pressure, right? I mean, there's a lot more that could be done. So I think that it is a clear ratcheting up if if all of the if all of the dominoes were to fall as have been you know put on the table uh, across the, the the few different areas and and targets that we just discussed, that would be a pretty substantial increase. That would certainly create a lot of headache and difficulty for both U.S. and certainly EU companies that have a lot of ties to Russia and a lot of business there and operations there and, 
what have you and trying to figure out how you're going to disentangle would be quite challenging i think in the coming you know months but um there still certainly could be room for more uh if if the us and or the eu were looking to you know kind of ratchet things up even more i'm not i'm just not sure um you know it's sort of an interesting you know sort of thought and policy exercise to just kind of game out sort of what it is that what it is that would be at all persuasive in terms of changing behavior on behalf of Putin and the Russian government. And I don't know that there is anything from a sanctions perspective that there would be, because to some degree, I think it's just expected that he will, you know, whatever may come, he would use to just sort of demonize the U.S. and the West and, and blame them for all of the Ru Russia's troubles. Uh, and, you know, perhaps that could help, you know, bolster his uh, already, you know, pretty ironclad grip on on the levers of power but um you know i'm not, i'm just not really sure what what there is that would um that would really change the calculus i mean that being said i think from a um you know there's kind of another category of uh perhaps of um actions here which is you know i feel like the you know the us and i've seen this discussed in some this is kind of in it's weaved into some of the messaging and some of the discussions that we've heard um, from Secretary Blinken and other senior officials in the administration as they're getting ready for the talks this week and and kind of you know sending shots across the bow um, to to Russia and even when President Biden spoke to uh, President Putin recently, um, you know it's almost it's almost like the U.S. is seeing this as something of a or is styling this as something of a you know a moral obligation to do something. Or to do something, uh, you know, kind of sufficiently, um, you know, uh, you know, exacting or, um, you know, significant to to try to at least send the message, even if the message may not ultimately, you know, get across or have its have its resulted or its sort of expected or hoped for, um, you know, end uh, outcome. So I don't know if. You know, we we may be but we may be boxed in. We the U.S. may be boxed in to some degree in the way that, um, you know, yes, you're right, and I think that this administration is committed to not just imposing sanctions for the sake of imposing sanctions, but at the same time, letting this stand, um, you know, kind of unaddressed doesn't seem to be palatable either. So it seems pretty likely that if there is any escalation on the part of Russia, there's going to be something, and it's going to be pretty it's going to be pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, so one of the one of the challenges I think in terms of formulating sanctions policy is trying to kind of turn the mirror onto the other side, and and I think one one thing that gets underestimated is this whole rally around the flag effect that um, we understand perfectly if it came within the United States. It, for example, you know, China imposes sanctions against the United States. It has done it in the past. Those haven't had much of an effect here, um, in part because almost, you know, it, there's almost a natural inclination to rally around the government, the U.S. companies that are sub subject to the, the sanctions. The same thing goes on in, in Russia. And in, in many ways, I mean, obviously, I, I don't think that President Putin wants additional sanctions against Russia, but I, I, I'm, 
I'm sure that from a domestic political standpoint, it's almost a good thing from his perspective. Now, he does have to deal with the economic fallout eventually. And if you were to put Gazprom onto the SDN list, or you know, we saw with Roussel when it was on the SDN list, the, the economic chaos that that could cause is considerable. And I think, you know, President Putin probably would not welcome that. On the other hand, being able to to posture in a big fight with the world, you know, superpower, the U.S., and to take on the whole Western world because you're trying to prevent, protect what he views as the Russian sphere of influence, and this is this is we're standing up to NATO from Russia's perspective, um, and this is what we get, but we're going to persevere because this is a, a battle between good and evil from their side. That's how they would frame it. We could see that happening here and the sanctions having very little effect other than to rally support domestically for a government that otherwise might be in trouble because of the its inability to deliver on various uh, economic promises that it's made. And so so I, I think we discount that sometimes in the sanctions context that that I think there is this kind of thinking sometimes that if you're just tough, that you'll persevere and you'll win. So if we would just impose maximum pressure sanctions against Russia, we could turn them around. And I, I'm not convinced that that's true and it hasn't really proven true anywhere else. It's much more subtle than that because um, you know, governments have a way of surviving when they're, they're when sanctions are imposed against them. And in fact, becoming more popular sometimes because they've got a common outside enemy that they can rally domestic people against. In the same way that would happen here. I mean, it's almost the wag the, the dog type, type scenario. If you can point outside the country at uh, other other countries that are, you know, demons that are making your your economy worse, and you can you can escape fault for any of that and actually distract attention in a way that may well be what's going on with Mr. Putin right now. Yeah. So let me let me come back. I'll come back to that in a minute. But let me pivot to something to pick up on one of the things you said, which is, and and I think another sort of interesting wrinkle here, which is sort of the U.S. alignment with allies in Europe in particular on on this issue, which it seems that at the moment, all of the signs are pointing to the fact that um, the closest U.S. allies uh, and partners are all very well aligned when it comes to sort of standing up to Russia and messaging the fact that in the event that there's an invasion, a decision to invade, that there's going to be significant consequences that are not just flowing from the U.S., but are going to flow from Kind of all corners of the Western world in terms of sanctions and other and other repercussions, perhaps. Most or one of the most interesting wrinkles here is our old friends in Germany and the new government in Germany, and in particular Nord Stream 2, which is again we're back to Nord Stream 2, which is the issue that seems to never die, despite the fact that it's it seems that this has been a, a done a done issue at several points in the past, but but not not exactly. So we talked about this not that long ago. Pipeline is not yet operational. There's some delays in terms of the German approvals to get to get everything um, sort of squared away to to begin uh, having the gas to flow. And now there are signals and comments being made by senior German officials that that gas that the uh, Nord Stream 2 may never become operational if Russia were to invade Ukraine, and that that would be sort of the red line, and that they're going to use this. And essentially now, Germany is using this as some leverage to try to lean on the Russians not to not to invade Ukraine. And so I'm I'm just curious. Curious what your reactions are to that, as there's sort of a very different tune coming from senior officials in Germany, and also with respect to where the U.S. has left things in terms of our own sanctions 
you know, kind of having taken a bit of a backseat on Nordstrom 2, although not completely being shelved, but having perhaps not been used as aggressively as they could have been, um, where you think that, uh, what do you think, what do you make of all that? And what do you see sort of playing out there in terms of Nordstrom 2 as a bargaining chip, perhaps in this whole, in this whole um, issue? Yeah, well, so I, I'm not sure that uh, this was the way that they drew it up on the, on the chalkboard. Nope. But but I think that it may be that the administration's willingness to kind of uh, defer to Germany on Nord Stream 2 um, has left the Western allies a bargaining chip um, in this process that might not otherwise have been there. And, and what I mean by that is had had the, the administration picked the fight that a lot of people wanted them to pick on Nord, Nord Stream 2, which is to impose sanctions on Nord Stream 2, um, under PISA, which the, the Trump administration did not impose either, but which the Biden administration um, expressly said they weren't going to do at Germany's request, at least as I understand it. That that leaves them the, the ability now um, to uh, work with Germany um, to go after Nord Stream 2 as one of the potential sanctions that could be imposed should Russia decide to invade Ukraine again. And, and it, ironically, I think, because again, I don't think this is how they drew it up, but had the administration moved forward unilaterally against Germany's objections, um, it probably wouldn't have been effective. I think we've talked about that on other podcasts, that when you have a, a unilateral sanctions policy that is uh, at odds with the po- policy of the c- country that where the, the project is on the ground. So if Germany had been... Um, opposed to sanctions against Nord Stream 2, while at the same time the U.S. was trying to impose them, you would have had a rift with Germany, obviously, but it probably still wouldn't have been effective because you've got your ally who would probably be your best way of enforcing those sanctions in your eyes and ears on the ground, not telling you anything about those the, that and, and probably actively trying to conceal things from you. Wouldn't have been a good situation, although the U.S. could have done it and it would have created some pain for Nord Stream 2. Now, because they didn't do it and they deferred to Germany, if Russia were to uh, if Russia were to invade and the Germans were to join sanctions against Nord Stream 2 at this point, and I've heard comments from Germany to the to the effect that if Russia invades, Nord Stream 2 is dead. Now. We'll see if the Germans back that up, but but that 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 would mean that you could probably impose effective sanctions against Nord Stream two. And I, I think that the, one of the reasons that the administration backed off uh, earlier this year was because of the the logistical and practical difficulties of making sanctions against Nord Stream two stick. If Germany's on board, those sanctions would stick, and so now you have a much more effective set of tools than you would have had if you had gone unilaterally. Again. I don't think it's how they drew it up, but the effect is what the effect is. And so where we are is we have a situation where they have a much more uh, potentially uh, uh, effective tool in the toolkit than they would have otherwise. Yeah, it's kind of a fascinating, I agree that this is not the way they drew it up. This is like the definition of improvising on the fly. Uh, but it's, it is fascinating that if you just listening to the and looking at some of the quotes that are coming out of, again, the German government. I, I saw somebody say something to the effect that Nord Stream 2 is the pipeline was a mistake. Someone else saying something akin to what you were talking about that you know we, we will have we will not hesitate to sort of shut this down if if they if Russia invades Ukraine. 
And Secretary Blinken also making the point, which is like, it's a mistake to think that Nord Stream 2 is a piece of leverage that the Russians can use against the West. It's the opposite. We can use this as leverage against them um, for exactly the reasons you just described. So it is it is fascinating how this has kind of come to the point it's at now, which is now that this may actually be a pretty significant strategic uh, chip that can be used by the West uh, to hopefully, you know, perhaps deter Russia from uh you know taking a step to invade so um let me let me pivot to one uh, sort of two final issues one is one is uh kind of back to collateral consequences again because i do think this is important um so i've read and, and i know you have too a number of you know analyses and and articles that talk about it in particular if if there's a hard if there's a hard push to sanction the financial sector to to decouple large financial institutions in Russia from SWIFT uh, and the like, that that could have, you know, the ripple effects of that would be really pretty significant. And if you look at the way that the, if you look at the way that financial sanctions have been imposed, that sanctions have been imposed against the financial sector to date with respect to Russia, it's been very carefully and very targeted in part because there is so much interconnectivity between the West and Russia with respect to debt obligations and other, you know, financial ties that are, you know, pretty long-standing at this point. That if, if that were to be, let's say, wiped out or uh, under threat in a in a more significant way, or the prohibitions that would that would apply to U.S. persons and and perhaps, um, you know, the risk to others in Western Europe were to were to be really amplified significantly, you know, that would have, uh, I think, drastic and far-reaching consequences on the global economy. And so I think that, you know, the U.S. government and Treasury is obviously well aware of that. And, and so thinking through what that would look like and how that would be implemented is a, is a fascinating uh, thought exercise. And obviously, they haven't tipped their hand too much as to what they may do or are willing to do. But the, the SWIFT, the SWIFT, um, you know, de sort of um, decoupling from SWIFT is a big one because, again, that's what's happened in Iran, and that has basically put the Iranian financial system, you know, just on an island and and to be essentially a pariah in the in the global financial world. And so that's perhaps what is being hinted at, at least with respect to Russia. The other secondary thing that I want to mention. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. And then relating to that, I have seen some other um, commentary that has suggested that well. If that's what happens, you know, the Bank of China is already off of SWIFT and it would be happy to continue to uh, transact with the Russian financial sector if that were to happen. And that that would in, in, inevitably then just draw closer the, the sort of Russia-China alliance such as it is um, in opposition to the U.S. and the West. So so. Curious to hear your thoughts on kind of those two things, because those are big ones. Those are big, those are big, you know, secondary indirect consequences that could come from harsher sanctions against the financial sector in particular, and are definitely consequences that are not going to be um, in the best interest of the U.S. if they're not sort of managed in the, in the proper way uh, through this process. Yeah, so I mean your second your second part of the question anticipated my answer to the first one because I look 
SWIFT, the, removing the Russian banks from SWIFT would be a big deal, and especially if the European allies are on board, because SWIFT is over in Europe, um, which they weren't, you know, quite frankly, with respect to Iran, but you know, it still largely got done. But but I think if the, the with the allies on board, it is a huge tool. But you know, we've talked about this before, and eventually you get to the point where the use of you know your financial system as a as a stick um, starts to cause other countries to move away from your financial system, and so it becomes a less powerful stick every time you use it. So you have to kind of moderate with the the idea that we're only going to use it in really important situations, so that it doesn't become overused and it, it, people eventually decide, you know, or at least a tipping point of countries decide we're going to move away from this financial system because they're just using it um, in ways that we don't agree with. Will we get there? I mean, I, I, I do think that it's a worry. I mean, we talked about this with, with Iran, and I, I read a, an article this morning in Borson in Bazaar, which is a very good kind of insight into what's going on in, in Iran about how the Chinese um, have essentially the most leverage at the JCPOA in negotiations because they're the ones that are currently buying all sorts of Iranian oil and they are able to get in the room with Iran and say, if we don't reach a deal, we're going to stop buying your oil. Those sanctions are going to go back into place. Now, the article didn't mention it, um, but the U.S. also has leverage there. It, it talked like the U.S. was tapped out, but part of the reason that China is being able to kind of buy this this these quantities of oil safely right now, I suspect, is because the enforcement actions that could otherwise be going on are essentially in limbo, or at least uh, practically in limbo, because of the because of the negotiations. So the U.S. has something to say there, but China has a lot of leverage with Iran because it is, you know, it has been the biggest customer of Iranian oil during the sanctions. In the same way. If uh, you know the U.S. were to remove the Russian banks from SWIFT, and you know Russian Russian financial sector is an important part of that economy, um, they, they could move to China in exactly the same way Iran has moved to China with respect to oil. The Russian financial sector could become much closer with China. There could be a competitor to SWIFT that has the kind of the Russia Chinese axis on there, and and you you started a competing system, and you made your your sanctions tool far less effective and far less valuable going forward. So it's a potent tool. It, it will have a significant effect, but it could wind up driving, creating new systems that are kind of outside our sanctions that we'd have to deal with going yeah, forward. Yeah, I think also interesting to note that all signs point to the fact that the UK, the EU, et cetera, are aligned with the US in terms of imposing something pretty harsh with regard to the financial sector in Russia if and when there is an invasion. And so that would even that would even further kind of isolate the the you know the Russia China bubble, so to speak, right? If the EU and the UK are imposing sanctions that are of some similar uh, you know caliber to what the US would be doing that sort of further isolates Russia from all of the Western kind of financial interests and kind of perhaps pushes them more toward China. So uh, yeah, agree. I don't. It's again, that's a that's a tricky one to sort of understand how that will play out exactly. But it is certainly one to keep an eye on. One last thing that I want to throw out there for you, because um, this is one that I've been getting some questions on, and I'm I know you have too. Um, so let's just say you're you're at your company, 
you're at your multinational, whether you're in the US or in Europe or anywhere else around the world, quite frankly, and you have significant or at least or at least some exposure to Russia, whether it's because that you have customers there, you have operations there, you have supply chain that runs through there, you source from there, whatever it may be. Uh, and you're now sitting in, in the current period, you're looking at what's going on, you're thinking about all that could be coming in terms of sanctions and other measures that could really upend the way that the US and certainly, and more broadly the West sort of deals with Russia from an economic perspective. What do you do? What do you do right now in the in the run up to that? Is there is there anything that companies should be doing or could be doing? How do you kind of assess, um, how do you even assess what contingencies you may need to put in place? Do you, you know, do you do something right now? Do you, what do you, what, do, what is there to be done? I think there's, I don't know that there's any sort of right or wrong answer to this necessarily, but I think it's just a fascinating question that I know a lot of companies are starting to wrestle with and have been wrestling with now for the past few months as this has been building. And so just curious what your, what your quick thoughts are on that as kind of a final, as a final note on this topic. Yeah. So I've been working with clients on on risk assessments in this area. I mean, you, and you start with, well, what is my what is my exposure to Russia? You know, what what sort of connections do I have in Russia? Um, and and then you can look at those connections and see are those the sorts of connections that would likely be the subject of of sanctions going forward? So, for example, you know, are you exposed to Russian banks? If you have exposure to Russian banks at this point, I'd be very worried that those those uh, ex that exposure could be the subject of sanctions going forward. Um, you know, the SWIFT if the SWIFT sanctions that we're talking about were to occur, your exposure to Russian banks might mean that you couldn't interact with Russian banks. Russian banks could go on the SDN list. That could be another cause of exposure. If your client is in the energy industry, do they have exposure currently to projects that are, you know, the subject of Directive 4? Um, because it could be that Directive 4 um, projects get put on the SDN list, that those sanctions get ratcheted up um, because currently there's, you know, some restrictions, but they're relatively um, targeted. Do those expand? Um, and, and so what, 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 I've been doing what we've been doing is walking clients through kind of what's your exposure to Russia and is that exposure in areas that are likely to be subject of sanctions going forward and it's in somewhat it's somewhat imprecise but but we know from what we've seen what sanctions have been talked about what sanctions have been imposed in the past and we know that obviously the exposure is going to likely be limited to your connections to Russia so it is something that you can do to anticipate kind of what would we do if the sanctions came forward? Because if they do, they're going to come forward relatively quickly, I would suspect, because they'll follow almost immediately after an invasion, which is obviously not going to be telegraphed as to exactly when it's going to come. And so you could wake up, you know, one week from now, two weeks from now, six months from now, and uh, the invasion happens and the sanctions are imposed within hours or within days, because I, I also think that this is an exercise that OFAC is uh, undertaking right now and the State Department is undertaking right now as to what sanctions would go into place immediately. And I think they'll go into place very quickly. And so you may have to deal with them. So it is a good idea to get out front on these issues. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all that. And I would just add to that. Um, and just to put a finer point on what Tim said, I think the one thing that I'm seeing now is there are a lot of companies out there we know that obviously have 
some exposure to Russia, some connection to Russia in some form or fashion, and perhaps the compliance and the legal teams have not fully gotten a handle on precisely what the scope and scale of that is. And so it's kind of anecdotal. Like I, I have definitely had a number of, of conversations in the last couple of months where it's, it's, it's coming in as, well, we know that this could be an issue for us, but we're not precisely sure how big of an issue it will be, as Tim kind of just alluded to. So getting a better, whether it's doing a formal risk assessment or it's just gathering some data and understanding um, the nature of the exposure, I think is job number one for sure. Number two, beyond what Tim just said about understanding whether you have exposure to high risk uh, industries or areas or entities from a census perspective is kind of that secondary piece, which is there is such a potential for disruption to come, even if you're operating perhaps in areas or with, with entities that are not necessarily going to be subject to direct action perhaps by the sanctions. But as a secondary or tertiary consequence, there is the possibility of massive disruption that could come to your operations, to your supply chain, to your customers, whatever the case may be, by virtue of what's being contemplated. So I think it's trying to game out a little bit, okay, where do we, if there's a, if you think of this as a, not to, not to make light of this, but if you think of this as like a bomb going off and sort of where are we in the blast radius? Are we right up next to it and we're really in the ri the highest risk area or are we a layer or two removed or, or a little bit out of remove from that? And it's possible that if this happens, then that would mean X, Y, Z for us or whatever the case may be. So I think it's, it's gaming out, thinking through, being thoughtful and being proactive and prepared for those types of contingencies that can certainly be hugely beneficial if you're if if you're able to do that now as when there's still you still have a bit of time on your side because to tim's point if this if this comes if this comes down it's going to come like a piano falling out of the sky in everybody's head it's not going to be with much warning and it's going to it's going to be sudden and it's going to be decisive in all likelihood and then everyone's going to have to pick up the pieces and decide how to you know scramble to deal with it at that point so a little advanced planning now when um, you know the storm clouds are still gathering, I think is is definitely a a good idea to the extent that that's possible. So with that, unless you have any final thoughts, I was going to leave. We can we can stop on Russia. That was a lot of Russia. As let's we, let's move on for now. <laughs> let's move on for now. I'm sure we will be back to uh, Russia before too long. But um, that is uh, that is you know. A lot of different angles. We, there's many other things we didn't even cover, but many angles there. A lot of things to think about. A lot of things for everybody out there to think about with respect to Russia. Um, so keep keep an eye keep an eye out on what's next there. So with that, let me pause for the lightning round sound effect, and then let me throw it to Tim to introduce the first topic. We're going to hit three topics. Um, as I mentioned, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act that got enacted, signed by President Biden just before Christmas, which is mostly a import customs focused act, but does have some sanctions aspects to it. And um, we thought would be worth uh, covering quickly in the lightning round. So I'll turn to Tim. Yeah. So uh, as you mentioned, Brian, on December 23rd, President Biden signed the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act into law. Um, and basically, you know, since it is the lightning round, we'll just focus on the key components. Um, one is that it requires the government to create a strategy for preventing importation of goods made with forced labor in China. So essentially high priority enforcement sectors, 
um, we're already seeing some action uh, in enforcement action or increased enforcement action in some of these sectors, but the government is supposed to come up with a, a strategy for trying to enforce um, prohibitions on the import of uh, goods made with, with forced labor. Um, and it also has to include guidance to importers that, that essentially requires um, you know, s supply chain due diligence. That is, U.S. importers now really do need to figure out in their supply chain um, where, where, and 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 how is the is forced labor be, it, 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 or how do they make sure that forced labor isn't in their supply chain, and if it is, um, how do they weed it out? So that's one important. Um, you know, piece of this legislation. The second one, and I think one that you've heard talked a lot about, is that there is a um, rebuttable presumption at this point. The legislation imposes a rebuttable presumption. Um, the goods made in whole or in part in the in the Xinjiang uh, autonomous zone um, are prohibited. So that is that if the once the once the CBP determines where the goods came from, there's a presumption that they were made with forced labor, and so. You, that, that presumption then has to be overcome by clear and convincing evidence, uh, which is a difficult standard for any importer to, to have. And so that is going to essentially make it very difficult, if not impossible, to import many goods from Xinjiang province because of this rebuttable presumption. And then finally, um, there there is this new, as you mentioned, Brian, an additional basis for sanctions under the, the earlier, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act of 2020. It, it essentially adds some grounds for sanctions, mainly that um, there were serious human rights abuses in connection with forced labor is, is a ground for imposing sanctions under the, the earlier Act of 2020. So it's it's basically a, a you know, a, a big deal in the sense that, um, you know, from the customs side, it makes it very hard to import any goods that have any trace to that, um, and really does impose significant due diligence requirements on on importers. From the sanction side, I think it's mostly aimed at uh, you know individuals and companies in China that are that are facilitating um, this sort of uh, of issue and 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 uh, implicated in human rights abuses. But I think it's yeah. you know, just another ground for imposing sanctions. Yeah, so I'll just I'll just add quickly. So on the custom side, this is and and we wanted to flag this in part because I think in some at some point in the next couple of months, as especially as the implementation of the act uh, rolls along, we'll probably have uh, the number one all time embargoed guest Richard Mojica back on the pod to discuss this in more detail. Uh, but you know, this is a very big deal on the cust <laughs> this is a very big deal on the custom side for the reasons Tim mentioned. There's also been a promise now also of some guidance that will be provided to importers from US authorities, which is something that industry has been clamoring for because there's a lot of complaint that it's a bit of a it's a bit of a black box that importers are trying to fight against in terms of proving the you know that their supply chains are untainted by forced labor, untainted by connections to Xinjiang. Uh, and what have you. And so there has been guidance that's been promised. So we shall see what that yields, but um, did want to mention that. On the sanction side, I think there's sort of one other thing or a couple other things that I wanted to mention. Um, there are two provisions under the act that call for um, reports to Congress. And we've seen, we've seen this in the past, both with the um, in with the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act of 2020, there was a similar provision that called for a report to Congress to be provided that would identify persons who met certain criteria that could be that would then be subject to sanctions. That report has not ever been issued. 
Um, so, you know, we don't, we know better than to hold our breath for these reports. No, no disrespect to our friends at the state department. Um, but the timelines that are imposed by Congress are, are not always met by the agencies in providing these reports. Um, and so that report for under section five of this, um, of this new law, which now, um, allows for, again, the, uh, imposition of sanctions on those who commit serious human rights abuses in connection with forced labor, if they are so identified in a report to Congress in the first instance, that is another sort of hook for sanctions that can be imposed with respect to uh, Xinjiang and with respect to forced labor um, generally. Um, I would add, though, as we have discussed in the past, of course, there is also there is already the Global Magnitsky Act, and there are already a number of sanctions that have been levied against parties in connection with activities in the region in Xinjiang, relating precisely to essentially that conduct that is now flagged in this in the UFLPA. So, I don't think anybody should be under any false impressions that this is something brand new. It is essentially a separate, independent basis to go after conduct that is already potentially sanctionable by the U.S. government under the Global Magnitsky Authorities, and in fact has been sanctioned by the BioFAC. That's XPCC. That's a related Chinese officials who were sanctioned at that time, and presumably that will be additional entities in the future. So, again, the the fact that there now could be a report to Congress with entities that are included for that reason and then subject to mandatory sanctions thereafter, we'll keep an eye on that. We'll see what that may yield. But again. As far as the practical reality of what is sanctionable now, Global Magnitsky already covers this ground, basically. Um, I would also say that there's another, there's one other reporting requirement under this, which is also kind of interesting. Section four of the of the act also calls for a report that, um, and that's within 90 days, that um, can uh, call out um, those who are uh, that have used or benefited from forced labor in Xinjiang, um, and that list would be again as part of a um, report to Congress that's supposed to be issued not later than 90 days after the act is enacted. Um, so user benefit that's really interesting because it'll be it'll be interesting to see there first of all whether they adhere to that timeline, second of all how broadly they they sweep there because that could sweep quite broadly with respect to entities that are using or benefiting from forced labor connected to Xinjiang. Um, and then whether or not that immediately ties into further sanctions that could come either under the Global Magnitsky Act or under later the Section 5 provision if they are named um, in a subsequent report to Congress um, as engaging in human rights abuses related to forced labor, or perhaps even something separately, like an entity listing, um, depending on the nature of the activities, the nature of the industry, what have you. So there's a lot of, you know, there, there is a lot of um, unknowns that could be coming as a result of some of these new provisions. But uh, so something we wanted to flag, because I do think that there could be, there could be some certainly relevant actions coming in the sanctions realm. Again, by and large, I think this is more of a this is more focused and more impactful on the custom side, but is something we wanted to flag quickly in part because of the the potential impact on the sanctions side as well. 
yeah, just more sanctions authority, which happens in a lot of areas that become somewhat redundant. Somewhat redundant. Cause, yeah, exactly. Right, cause celeb from a sanction standpoint, like Nord Stream, where there's just repeat authorities right. coming out that are very much but, overlapping. But, yeah. Right, but you know, still important. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, so with that, let's put topic one from the lightning round aside. Let's move on, as I mentioned at the outset, to a couple of new appointments that just took their uh, posts at the Commerce Department to um, political appointees. And this is the Assistant Secretary for Export Enforcement, uh, who the new uh, incoming Assistant Secretary is Matt Axelrod, and the Assistant Secretary for Export Administration, Taya Kendler. And they were both confirmed uh, in December and both took um, took their posts in late December. And then there was just a big announcement that just came a few days ago from Secretary Raimondo relating to their um, their um, now occupying these new posts. So why are we focused on this? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, these are both um, both uh, Axelrod and Kendler are both DOJ alums. And so I think it's typically notable when uh, high-ranking officials at a place like the Commerce Department have that prosecutorial background because that often signals that there is a particular emphasis and focus on on enforcement and on more aggressive enforcement. And I think that is the case here, that that is what that is trying to, to, to signal. Axelrod, for those who don't know, was the number two official in the Deputy Attorney General's office. He served under Sally Yates. He was her um, principal assist, associate deputy attorney general uh, back in the latter part of the Obama administration. Um, and Taya Kendler, who is actually a former colleague of mine at the National Security Division, she was a longtime commerce um, official and, and attorney and then was at DOJ for a number of years before being appointed over export administration, which is obviously more on the regulatory side of things, licensing um, and and the like, and and those types of decisions. Um, she also, I think, is the, if I'm not mistaken, is the is the commerce official who will be sitting at the table for CFIUS as well. So we'll be bringing some of that um, her expertise as a prosecutor to bear there. So what is that? What does this really mean, and why do we want to flag it? Well, again, I think there has been. Now this is just anecdotally. Um, this is not me speaking. This is anecdotally, but I do think there has been some um, perception, perhaps, that the enforcement cadence at commerce kind of ebbs and flows over time. And so, certainly for Axelrod's position over BIS um, export enforcement, I think that is a criticism that we hear over time, and that there have been eras when it is quite active and eras when it is not as active. And so, I think with with now him at the helm. That certainly signals, at least externally, that this is going to be a priority to be more forward-leaning in terms of enforcement, to bring more cases, um, you know, at the administrative level within uh, BIS. So that's one thing. And then on the administration side, again, to have um, somebody like Kendler there who has a prosecutor background, who has a regulatory administrative background at the Commerce Department, um, who is by the way, this has been noted in a number of the articles that surrounded the announcement of her appointment. She was one of the lead prosecutors on the Huawei case at DOJ. And so that's with regard to Mrs. Meng and regard to the company. And so I think I'm you know, not surprised that her selection was probably more palatable to those in Congress, in part because she's 
going to be perceived as being tough on China as a result of that. And so I think that even though she is kind of over the more the sort of more traditional kind of regulatory side of the house at, at um, commerce now with export administration, I do think she brings, you know, she obviously brings that enforcement background and um, and the statements that she made at her confirmation hearing and, and otherwise certainly suggests that she is going to be nothing but tough on China. So um, just wanted to sort of flag that for people who maybe don't know who these people are or who haven't had um, a chance to sort of see this announcement, because I do think that for folks who interact with the Commerce Department, um, this this kind of new layer of leadership at the political level is worth noting and is potentially going to, you know, telegraph some changes that are coming in the in the in the next few months and years. Yeah, and I, I also think it's in some ways kind of a continuation of what we've seen since ZTE, where y you have a, a an enforcement focus at the Commerce Department that is kind of working hand in glove with the Justice Department, maybe not as smoothly as it could have, but much more smoothly than it has in the past. And and you saw that at, at beginning in ZTE, where you know a Commerce Department tool, the entity list, was really used as a critical part of that enforcement action to try and um, get ZTE to the table. We saw it with Huawei as well. Um, and even in, in Huawei, we saw kind of a Commerce Department monitor being used when really the, the judicial system Justice Department monitorship may have had um, some flaws that we've talked about in other in other episodes. And so I, I think it's not a coincidence that you're seeing a lot of Justice Department experience um, kind of seep over into the Commerce Department. And it's it's a continuation of a of a, a trend out there that, as you said, has ebbed and flowed some. But I think, you know, if you look at it from 50,000 feet, it's kind of moving more towards consolidation with the, the Justice Department in, in enforcement matters in this area. Yeah, and it will be fascinating with Huawei in particular, it will be fascinating to see how that plays out in terms of the ultimate resolution of what happens with the Huawei criminal matter. Because because obviously we have, there are you know Huawei and many of its entities and affiliates are already on the entity list. We have the special foreign direct product rule already in place. We have the clampdown from that perspective that has been led by Commerce. But with the the criminal case or multiple criminal cases that are still pending against the company, how is that going to play out? You know, as we talked about with the with Mrs. Meng getting her DPA, what does that mean for ultimate resolution there? Monitorship, no monitorship. What is that going to mean? I don't know, but I think it's sort of having, again, having folks at the highest levels of the Commerce Department who are intimately aware of that case and involved in it and and now sort of, you know, having their hands on the tools, the toolbox over at the Commerce Department, I think is a is a fascinating kind of, you know, um, you know, cross pollination, if you will, of the enforcement mechanisms of the U.S. government. So we'll see how that plays out, but worth noting um, yeah, for sure. So. And with that, let's let's move on to our final topic, which is OFAC's recent settlement with uh, Airbnb payments. Yes. So welcome to 2022. Um, on January 3rd, 2022, OFAC settled with Airbnb payments um, for uh, multiple violations of the Cuban sanctions regulations. And the the web description of of exactly what the violations were was a little bit. Um, I'd say opaque. Hard to hard but, to parse. Yeah, and there was a it's lot hard of, to there, parse. There was a lot of sampling that went into this, which I think is kind of fascinating. They used the word extrapolated like half a dozen times, which is interesting. Yeah. Yes. Essentially, you, you had a voluntary disclosure by Airbnb, and then I, I think, at least from from what I was able to to kind of 
read and then make educated guesses about from the from the web notice, it sounds like OFAC went back to Airbnb multiple times to try and have them increase the sample size and try and get an idea as to whether or not the the disclosed violations, whether there were a lot of similar ones. And I think the ultimate determination was that there were, which didn't surprise me. I mean, this was these were this was conduct that kind of dated back to 2015 and the Obama administration's kind of opening up to Cuba and the general the general licenses that allowed for travel and there were so many of them at the time that I think there had been kind of at least in in 2015 2016 and maybe into 2017 almost this view that the Cuba sanctions that as they relate to travel were basically gone and that tourism was uh, by US persons was effectively allowed in Cuba through one of the one or many of the different um, general licenses that wasn't the case, obviously, um, and, but but it looks like Airbnb kind of went into Cuba without kind of a good framework for compliance, and as a result, um, you know, had lots of spilling over the line uh, from from uh, customers who were, you know, there not for necessarily any of the twelve reasons that were allowed, but really for tourism, and th that was kind of winked and nodded at at the. What what jumped out at me from the from the web notice, you know, was first of all, the the maximum violation uh, as they went through because there were a number of violations that OFAC calculated that at six hundred million dollars. Um, there were then, there were thousands uh, of violations. Yeah, the thousands of violations, but all the violations were very small. So they they went back and they looked at the average transaction amount for the stays that that violated U.S. sanctions because they likely were tourism related stays. Um, it was one hundred and thirty nine dollars per violation. This was the the reason that I kind of jumped to this is because it is it is an example of a situation where a voluntary disclosure can make a huge difference in terms of leniency because even though the maximum penalty was six hundred million dollars, um, the the you had a, a the the once you took into the uh, to the account the voluntary disclosure, the base monetary penalty um, was one half the transaction value. So you had these really small size transactions and the voluntary disclosure allows you to look at half the transaction value for the presumptive penalty. So instead of the civil, you know, the maximum, which was 600 million, the presumptive penalty after the disclosure was 364,000. And then there were other mitigating factors, I think most likely as a result of the extensive cooperation and, and multiple requests that OFAC had made to Airbnb that then knocked the penalty down to $91,000. So you went from a max of 600 million to a penalty of 91, and that was off a, a base penalty of 365, where, where you got you know huge leniency for the disclosure and then even more leniency for cooperation. And so this is a situation where, had this been discovered you know through an enforcement action, which to be honest at the time, I think a lot of people could have guessed that there were multiple violations like this going on in a lot of the, the Cuba travel um, companies because there really was this atmosphere of, you know, the, the sanctions had been lifted in Cuba, even though that wasn't true. And so 
if this had been it been captured in an in enforcement you know a hostile enforcement environment the penalty could have been in the you know tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars and instead because of the disclosure the investigation the cooperation um you whittled that down to $91,000 at the end of the day and and a web notice that that really isn't that bad and so i i think this is a good example of you know the the risks for travel companies that are still doing business in Cuba, but it's also an advertisement for a situation where the voluntary disclosure can be in, in really in the company's best interest if done correctly and, and done, done, um, you know, completely by the, at the end of the day. Yeah. I would say in that vein, hats off to the company and to their lawyers for having done a, a very good job, obviously of digging through the data to come up with sampling and again, extrapolating to come up with some plausible amount of potential violations and go from there uh, in a manner that's, you know, satisfied OFAC and, and make the case that they had addressed these issues. Um, so yes, uh, kudos to kudos to them. The only thing that I would add to that is, and in, in for anybody's reference who hasn't looked at this, one thing that I think is interesting, a quick interesting takeaway and something that's you know reinforced in many of these uh, penalty notices, but I think is worth looking at here, is if you look at the final item in the mitigating factors that is listed, um, which basically talks about, um, I would characterize this as kind of the, the sort of more concrete compliance operational obstacles or challenges that need to be met in a in a complex sanctions compliance environment like Cuba, which is how can you implement IP blocking for certain individuals? How can you make sure you're collecting the appropriate data and the appropriate payment information? How can you screen hosts? How can you do checks, whether automated or manual, to ensure that no listings are associated with, in this instance, the Cuba restricted list? How can you require appropriate attestations or should you require appropriate attestations before completing a reservation? How can you require um, appropriate certifications that uh, parties who are availing themselves of these services are not affiliated with the Cuban government or the Cuban Communist Party? Those types of things. I think it's very easy to say, as Tim said, new opportunity, Cuba's, you know, rules in Cuba are being relaxed. Great, let's go for it. But then being able to actually implement and operationalize that is very complicated. And I think that is something to keep in mind, bear in mind that you need help and you need a real plan to think through all the different permutations. And, and sometimes it's impossible to know everything on the front end and to you do your best to kind of put in place what you think is going to cover all of the bases or cover all the risks. And then you have to adapt as you go um, through monitoring and testing and making sure that you're staying abreast of those things. But I think this is a really good example of that. And looking at those mitigating factors, I think really hammers that home for any companies out there who are thinking about new opportunities in perhaps higher risk jurisdictions to, to look at this and, and to use that as a uh, a lesson to, to help, um, you know, guide what you may think about doing in your own, in your own, pursuing your own opportunities. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of textbook in terms of what we train on. So, you know, make your voluntary disclosure decision here. It looks like it was, you know, strongly in the interest of the company to disclose because of the potential leniency, investigate well, 
um, and then remediate. And the remediation here, you know, was exceptional enough that OFAC broke it out into multiple parts in describing it. Um, it wasn't just a, they put in a new compliance program. It was here are all the things that they've got in place um, that we want to tell you about. We, OFAC, want to tell you about if you're reading this so that you know that these are the sorts of compliance measures that are kind of cutting edge and out there that you should be putting into your program so that you don't, you know, wind up in the same spot. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So with that, we will uh, a little dose of Cuba to um, to wash down all of the Russia that we that we discussed today. So um, that is our first episode of 2022. We are we are wrapped. Um, thanks to everybody for joining us um, and hope that everybody um, stays healthy um, in in the midst of the uh, latest Omicron spike and uh, stays hopefully not too disrupted by the snow, uh, at least here on the East coast of the U S and, um, we will be back later in January with, um, with, uh, episode number two of 2022, who knows what will, what will be, uh, in the queue for the next time, but, uh, probably some more Russia, but, um, we, we shall see. So, um, with that, thanks everybody and, um, stay well and stay sanctioned. So I'm, I'm guessing China, uh, Russia, Iran um, are big focuses the next time. That's just a prediction. Stay sanctions free, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye.